Blog Talk Radio. Okay, now I hit that thing eight times before we started, and it went wonderfully. Here we go. Jay, please don't talk over the LCs. Welcome to Beach State Pandemonium, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network, where we take you down memory lane for a look at professional wrestling the way it used to be, with conversations from those who paved the way. And now, the GWH Radio Network presents Beach State Pandemonium. Good evening and welcome to Peach State Pandemonium for Thursday, what is it, November, what's the day, 17th? Yes, 18th. something like 17th. that. This is Michael Norris along with Jerry Oates, Bobby Simmons, and Jay West. How you guys doing? Doing good, sir. Since we were we were off last week. I'm doing well. I, you know, Jay's the only professional we got and he just wants to, he talks over that opening every week. And me and Jerry just can't perform without our music. I got you. Well, you you know, it it really. I don't. We're not going to use the word I want to use here, but it. You know, I can, I can play I can play this thing twenty times before we go on, and it'll go. I barely touch it, and it goes. And then when we get ready to do the show, I it somehow or another it knows, and uh, it's like one of those horror movies. You know, for radio announcers, it's a horror movie. Because you know you don't you, you you just things like that just until you know the the dead air and 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 whatnot just kill you you can't you can't stand it and uh, it just you know it won't play until you is that like the dream of uh, if you're an actor being on stage in front of a, a large crowd with no clothes on yeah you got it. <laughs> Well, the, the DJ dream is back in our day, not now, because you got a computer that you're looking at, and then you look at all your little devices and whatnot. But back in the day, uh, when you used uh, turntables, I was in the very end of the era when turntables were the standard, and uh, you know you would go to turn, put a record on, and, and you would start it, and nothing would happen. And uh, then you'd go to the other one, and nothing would happen either. And then you would punch the cart. Once again, nothing, and then the turntable would start. So you know that's just the that's just the dream, so to speak. And then you wake up, you're 30 years older, and you're not working anyway. So what the heck? Uh, yeah, who cares, <laughs> right? Oh me, that's got to be hard on these teams that to play on Sunday. The Saints lost on Sunday. They got to turn around and play again tonight. I guess that's better than playing tonight and then having to turn around and play Sunday. Yeah, they were very creative in how they lost Sunday too. I, 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 that was good. I liked it. I couldn't watch it, so I just kept up with the score. I watched the, uh, I watched the the Falcons, and they uh, they didn't do too well either. Did you see the highlights of the Saints game? How they lost? Uh huh. They tied the score with uh, like no time on the clock. They're going to kick the extra point. Denver blocked it. Picked it up, ran it all the way back the other way for two points. Jeez. And they lost 25-23. Wow. You're not shocked by that, are you? Do what? You're not shocked by that, are you? No, 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 no. They got a heck of a booker, man. <laughs> Evidently. 
But uh, so, well, Bobby, I've been seeing uh, these commercials for the uh, season tickets for the Falcons only being five hundred dollars, and I'm, uh, I, I can't see the TV uh, enough the, whether they're trying to put guy, they got stuff in small print about the five hundred dollars is the PSL, sir. Well, they act like it's the whole thing. Five hundred dollars. No, 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 no. Well, I'm just telling you what the commercial says. So I understand. I've seen it. And they're lying to them people just like they lied to me. <laughs> well, before it's over with, that may be the case. It's not doing well at all, Jerry. They haven't sold near the tickets they thought they would sell. Their season ticket base has dropped off tremendously because the people's got tickets are not renewing because they're not, you know, I mean, they picked up some, but they're not, people aren't buying them. I mean, it's, it's, it's and, you know, the thing is, like I say, I, I laugh about them having a good booker. Hey, they're winning. They have a, they got a pretty decent team this year. They've looked good anyway. You know, most of the games except Sunday they looked horrible. But what are they six and four now? They're yeah six and four and uh, leading the division. And uh, you know, I just uh, it's just crazy. I the young lady that bought my tickets at the church. She's gonna. I'm actually New Year's Day. I'm gonna go with her. We're not having services on that Sunday, so. I promised her I would go with her that day. I was at the first game they played in the Dome. I guess I'm going to the last one. So. But, you know, it's like anything else. You can price yourself out of business. Yes, sir. Absolutely. You certainly can. It's, it's happened to NASCAR. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, a lot, of, a lot of things have happened to NASCAR. And, uh, you know, I saw a story on that about, you know, the idea behind NASCAR looking for a – younger, more diverse audience, and in such, they have killed their their baseline audience that had been there for, you know, 50 years. Uh, and uh, it's, it, if you look at all those things, it just tells you, you know, what you're seeing out there today is nothing like what was there 25 well, years ago. Done. What they've and, done, they, they've monkeyed with the cars, you know, the Francis that own it, you know, they, you know, I don't know what they're trying to do. You know, they they keep monkeying with the cars, and the drivers don't know what the cars do, and they've changed all that craziness about, you know, uh, at the end of the race, if you so many laps, if it's a wreck, it's a, what, green, white, checker, three laps, you know, I mean, it's just, they, they just, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah. But that's, well, they, you know, and then, they fixed it too many times when it wasn't broke. Thank you. That's what they've done. But you, you, you can outguess yourself, and you know the NFL ratings are down by we know a lot of different reasons. But sure. you know, uh, and, and yeah, now but, really and truly, I never thought I'd say this. I'm enjoying college football more than the NFL. Yep. I really am. I, I do too. But the I'd problem with that. college football, and and of course, the only thing I watch is the is the Bama games because that's the only winner I can follow because none of my other teams do very well. But but the thing is, there's so damn many penalties. I mean, if a guy scratches the wrong place, they throw a flag at him. I mean, and this stuff about you know, Captain. I mean, not Captain Nick, but uh, Cam Newton don't want to be touched anymore. Vaughn Miller. <laughs> Show him about himself, but you know it, it's it's they just weren't in it, like you said. There are there too many flags. They flag everything. 
in college hadn't gotten to it, but you know the NFL's got the rule about the the celebrating in the end zone, and you know, yes, that's ridiculous. I mean, it's just well, you they, know. to me, they take that too far. You know, you're a professional paid athlete. They act like they've never scored a touchdown. You know, sure. here's well, yeah, you're right. Like some that. of them do, but I mean, but some of the things that they're they're you know. Uh, if a guy jumps, you know, and, and does the dunk over the, the goalpost, they'll flag him and all that stuff. And, you know, well, if I was a coach, I wouldn't let my players do that. Afraid of hyperextending their knees when they come down. <laughs> that's true. You know, that's a good point, that's too. Good point. But, I mean, uh, I look at it from, but, you know, it's, it, this too will pass. It, it won't be what it once yeah. was. When they, when they spend all that time in the end zone, after, you know, after they've scored, uh, it just keeps building and building and building, and what happens then is you're late going to the commercial, and that's yeah, where, that's a, that's the exact reason they're doing it is because of that, all that's the all, the all that's what it all boils down to. You can't do that, and you know if you run the game too late, then it uh, goes into the next show that uh, they're they're getting all this commercial money from, and it throws it late in in, in too late in the evening to go on. So it's uh, you know it's it's all a money deal, uh, and uh, it's you know I guess we could say that about a lot of other things, but uh, yeah that end zone thing uh, you're right Jerry they they can't they could injure themselves, also a lot of it is just repetitious, and it is uh, you know to say the least not professional, but and, and it is, each one tries to outdance the other one you know yeah. If yeah, they, but if it I is a Monday night football to see a new move, then they go try it Sunday. You know, that's just yeah. <laughs> well. Here's yeah, something yeah. that, but long time Mark, you know, spent a lot of money on tickets over the years, and this bugs me. It bugs me then. It bugs me now, and I think about it and I get bad. These guys do this dancing and do this patting themselves on the chest, and they're losing by forty two points. No, that, no see, and it's like they've you, done but... something, and it's like, hey man, look at the scoreboard. You know, you know what looking, they're looking at. Getting back to Jay's point about the money, they're thinking about, hey, if I score so many po- uh, touchdowns this season, I get a bonus. Yeah. So that's what they're—they're they're not concerned about their teammates or their fans. No, they're concerned no, it's about all, their, their bonus money. It's all about me. It's—it's—it's it's, yep. uh, it's, 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 it's what it is. And the thing is, mm-hmm. the, the new rules going into baseball next season—it's going to be just as messed up. You know, they want to do away with the the pitch outs. They want the pitcher to just say, okay, we're going to walk him and just wave his hand and let the guy go to first base. No kidding. No, yeah, they're going to do that. And, they, you know, well, and they, you this know. whole thing about cutting down to, you know, the guy on the, 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 the when the coach comes out and, and uh, or, or, you know, the pitching coach comes out or whatever and they meet at the mound. Now, the, the minute everybody starts gathering at the at the mound, the damn umpire comes out too to tell him to go back and sit down. <laughs> and then now yeah. another thing they're changing is they want to limit the number of visits to the mound, and they want to limit the number of uh, times you can bring in a new pitcher. And it's all because it's taken away from them being able to go to commercial breaks. Yep. It's just well, as my grandfather used to say, "It's just a pure racket." Pure <laughs> racket. There's too much business in the business. I used to say like, that about yeah. the music business. There's too much. There's too much business, business, in, the business. in the music business, and there's too much business in 
baseball and and everything else. But hey, as long as, as long as you're selling tickets, I guess you know you got to worry about the sponsors. Even though the sponsors don't really do anything, they don't build the stadium for them. The taxpayers have to do that. But anyway, that's right. But I, Alabama, they've they've made me nervous a little bit because I was wondering how well they were going to do without uh, Derrick Henry. And damn, if their quarterback's not running as many yards <laughs> as their running backs do. I watched a game two weeks ago. The, the the quarterback now rushed for over 100 yards. And I'm thinking, I have never seen that before. That Saban's a genius. He is. But he's never he is happy. That. He is never happy. No. But, you know, you can't blame him because his players will get more penalties. Alabama must be the most penalized team in college sports as far as football goes because they, they average about – Four or five a game, but anyway, we'll get around to talking about wrestling here in a little bit. I was wondering. I was thinking about that with our <laughs> with our short show, short show tonight. Yeah, we are only going to do an hour tonight, guys, because Jay's uh, Jay's been beating his wife again. Now he's he's, yeah. he's broken her hand, and uh, last it was several months ago. He he twisted her knee and tried to blame it on the dog, and you know that's right. You keep that and up. She's, she's gonna be uh, she's gonna be getting on the phone to uh, Kathy well, Oates and borrowing those skate blades, and she's gonna be chasing yeah. her around the house. Well, she hit me in the back. When I was asleep, <laughs> she hit me in the back, and I can't hardly get up now. So she's paid me back. So, but but it still makes it rough. I heard she I heard she slams you. Yeah. Well, she could do. You know, she's not she's not big, but if she got mad enough, she could. Hey, she she's a she was a touring musician, you know. She I'm sure she knows how to swing a guitar. If she has to. Well, she's sure. performed behind uh, behind chicken wire. I'm sure. Well, she had a derringer <laughs> between, you know, in the uh, on her left in, inside. What do you call it? Right there in the lower leg, you know. And, yeah. Uh, uh, not that we played all that many places that were that bad. You, you know, it can anything like that can happen anywhere. Where Absolutely. all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it goes to hell, you know. And all it takes is beer. Yeah, I used yeah. To, I used to hate working in arenas. It's old beer, mainly because I, uh, I was a heel most of the time, and it just, you know. I played a lot of weddings where where there were actually, you know, upscale type people, and something was said on one side of the family to the other side of the family. And the next thing you're doing is trying to protect the drummer because he's the one that can't move, uh, you know. And uh, it's it's you're right. That's all it takes. Well, we've all been around enough in in, in our businesses business that uh, our the uh, what alcohol does to people. That's one of the reasons I don't drink. I never was that way anyway. But I came from a family of mean drunks. Well, you know, interestingly enough, I hadn't had a drink in about thirty years. And uh, Saturday night we were at a, uh, at a military function, and uh, the guy that uh, was the caterer that I had worked through, he asked me if I if I wanted a drink. And obviously it was free, and they were charging about six six fifty for a drink. And I, you know, and my back was hurting me, and I said, Yeah, okay. So uh, I, I let it sit there for about an hour and a half, and you know, thaw out. But uh, it it kind of helped my helped my 
held my back that night. At least that was the excuse I gave it. Rum and coke, that was always my downfall. You believe so I'm back to, Yeah, so I'm back to one week now on how long it's been since I've had a drink <laughs> rather than 30 years. Well, you know, that's why you got to reset the clock, you know. That's right. You know, I was never, I was never a drinker either. And I had, uh, I worked Griffin on Saturday night, and I hyperextended my elbow. And I got up on Sunday morning and had to go to Savannah, and we were flying down. And I was hurting so bad, I was crying. I mean, there were tears coming out of my eyes. I, was, I didn't know how I was going to work. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you don't call and say, hey, I'm not going to be there today, I'm hurt, you go get on the airplane, fly to Savannah. Right. And Charlie Tanaka, the good professor, is sitting behind me. And he reaches up and he taps me on the shoulder and he goes, hey, brother. He says, what's the matter? And I told him. He said, I'll take care of you. Plane got up in the air. He called the stewardess over. A few minutes later, she brings me this drink and sets it in front of me. And I went, ma'am, I didn't order this. She said, the fellow behind you said, give this to you. And I looked back. I said, hey, what's this? He said, don't worry about it. He said, just drink it, brother. I said, okay. So I drank it. At that point, I didn't care. I was going to do something. All right. I got to Savannah. Not only did my arm not hurt, I didn't even really know I had an arm. <laughs> <laughs> work, work, well, show, long- flew home, never had another pain the rest of the day until I got up Monday. Well, as long as, long as everything else worked that day, you were in luck. Yeah, I had no. I have no idea what it was. Don't know what was in it. I just know it worked. It must have been pretty good it, to uh, get you through that day. It, it it was. But toward the end of my career, I saw more drunks in the dressing room than in the stands. Yes, oh, sir. Absolutely. Absolutely. When, when uh, thinking about that, Jerry, and uh, the process <laughs> from your younger days to towards the end of your career. When did you see that as a turning point? You know, not laughing about it, but really, when did that start happening? Uh, well, right here in Georgia. At the yeah, end. but what, what what was the time frame? Oh, God. Jay. It started in the early 80s. Okay. Yeah. yeah, early 80s. And then, then, you know, then the drugs and the, you know, well, well, like, just know, like I, the rest of rest of the country, when cocaine became prevalent, I mean, I you know we were always around guys who who liked their smoke and stuff, and you know, sure, that yeah. was that was pretty normal. But you know, when they started with the cocaine and uh, you know that stuff, and it's like and there, a, there was a few guys that were actually functional alcoholics. I mean, oh, without a doubt, the yeah, guy that comes sure. to mind is Luke Graham. Luke, oh, absolutely, Luke, Luke drank all the time, but. Never did I have a problem with him. Never did I hear of him getting a DUI. Matter of fact, if he didn't have a drink, I wanted him to have one because it mellowed him out. And, but I never and, you heard know, anybody having trouble with him, Bobby. In no, the sir, land. none Nobody. whatsoever. But, you know, there were some guys like that, you know. And then there was, you know, guys that left Columbus TV, and by the time they got to the show Saturday night, was so drunk they couldn't stand up. So, you know. Where did, where did uh, you know, uh, everybody's gone? Where did Sputnik Monroe fall into that category? That's a Jerry you question. I never worked with Sputnik. I knew him. I, you know, I cannot. You didn't, Bobby? Never worked with him. Met him, met him through Rocket. When it was during the time of the split. I met him when he came in here to work for Gunkle through Rocket because I was hanging with Rocket. Me and Rocket was big buddies. 
and I met him, and we talked, and we got to know each other, and I knew him through the reunions, but I was never in the ring with Sputnik. You know, I, you know, that's a good question, Jake. Uh, I'm just wrecking my brain since you said that. I, I'm not saying he didn't. I never saw it. Yeah, I think most of his was on the road, though, because I mean, you yeah, know, I've heard horror stories about just like with Jerry Graham, you know, him him peeing on himself in somebody's car and everything, and you know, he was bad to do that. I know that's what eventually split he and Rocket up in Florida. Rocket told me. Sputnik could have been a millionaire if he could have left the booze alone. He said yeah. when he, remember he told me when him and Denise got married and Denise became pregnant with their oldest child, Michelle, he said they were coming home one night from somewhere in Florida. And he said, Michelle, he said they, somehow the naming of the child got brought up and Rocket told him he was going to name the child Michelle. And Sputnik told him that was the dumbest name he'd ever heard. And Rocket said he stopped the car, got out, opened the door, drug him out, and he said they they, they almost had a fist fight on the side of the road. He said he was that bad. He said, but when he was sober, he said he knew more about this business than anybody he had ever met. Well, the the only story that I, I heard that was not secondhand uh, was from Jim Bell, who I first knew as the radio announcer, and then he was the uh, announcer in Griffin before he went to Atlanta TV shortly and then became a referee. And finally, he became the promoter in Savannah. And uh, Rocket had been the promoter before him. And uh, and I asked him, I said, what happened? And he said, Rocket couldn't stay off the booze. So, you know, Sputnik. I mean, I'm sorry, Sputnik couldn't stay off the booze. So, you know, and that was kind of towards the end of what you would say his his career he you know by the time he was doing that he was no longer even a a mid card guy uh, on a regular basis I mean he might have been brought in as a special attraction but I guess maybe that could have been part of it too him knowing that his glory days were were behind him I, with some guys I'm sure that in in the music world it was like that and I'm sure in in the wrestling business it was like that too with guys that knew that they're their higher days on the card were were over, you know. Well, it wasn't just that. He was it was it was throughout his career. Story that I've heard for years, and it was confirmed. Him and Trent Phillips were making a trip somewhere down in Louisiana way back in the day. And and Sputnik had bought a I can't remember if it was Sputnik or Trent. One of them had bought a Cadillac and they had bought a lemon. And they both got juiced up on the way home and decided to set the car on fire so they could get the insurance from it. And they were so messed up that when they stopped and set it on fire, they set it on fire right in front of a volunteer fire department. Okay. <laughs> and, the, and the fire department put it out. So, you know, that's – there was a lot of those stories. You Rocket. Rocket, as far as I know, Rocket never never drank anything other than – he, he had – he would have a little mixed drink every once in a while if he was out at a club with the guys or something, but he, he was not. Me and Rocket, they used to laugh at us. When we rode together, we would stop at the store and buy Fritos and buttermilk and drink it on the way home while everybody else was <laughs> six-packs. Rocket was the only person I ever ever knew that could smoke a cigar, chew tobacco, and drink a Coca-Cola all at the same time. Yep, and never mix them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
I know we've mentioned it on here before, but he was he was working in uh, in Hattiesburg one night, and he did a run in on a match that Armand Hussein was in, and when he forgot to spit his tobacco out, so he went went in the ring, and he was choking Armand, and Armand just you know was selling it and had his mouth open. So Rocky just let the tobacco, the water drop tobacco water, drip, yep. drop out of his mouth right into Armand's mouth. <laughs> oh man, what a character he was! I miss him so much. I know Bobby what does. What happened to Armand? Uh, he wound up uh, back in Dallas, which is where he was from. He uh, sometime in the early to mid eighties, uh, he was working for Fritz. He was he was a manager along with Gary Hart. He was he would manage and he 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 wrestle opening card. But he was also got involved with uh, a lot of blues musicians out there and kind of had his own uh, booking agency for for, mu- for musicians throughout uh, you know Texas. Well, and uh, that's what he was doing when he died. Were any of you guys ever around him that he didn't kayfabe that accent? Not me. I, I That's another one I, I never met. You kidding? Nope, never did. What a great guy he was. But he, uh, yeah, he would, uh, he was from, from what I understand, he was from somewhere in Alabama originally. That's where he was born, but he grew up in Texas. But well, did you, did you he ever hear him that talk naturally, Mike? So long, that's the way. I never heard him talk without it. I didn't either, Mike. Mike, was he the guy that was in the car with Dean Silverstone when he told yep. the story about the snowstorm? Yep, with the midgets. <laughs> I don't know if you guys ever read Dean Silverstone's book or not. He was promoting out in Washington, and they were making a trip. And it was him. And I can't remember who was in the front seat. It might have been, I can't remember, it might have been Eddie, uh, Sullivan. Eddie Sullivan. But in the back seat was Armand Hussein and a midget. And Armand had this great big ring jacket that weighed about 50 or 60 pounds with all the sequins and so forth on it. And he wouldn't put it in a trunk. It stayed in a in a suit bag, and he had it laying up in the back window of the car. And Dean said in his book, he said they was coming home, and it got to snowing, and the ice got bad, and they ran off the road, and they spun out of control. And they they get to where they're going, and it and the, the windows break, and so on, whatever. They get out, they can't find the midget. They said they're they're looking all through the snow. They think the midget's been thrown out of the car. Uh, Armand's running around, whatever. You know. They finally hear the midget yelling, and they go back, and that fifty pound jacket had come off the back window, and pushed that midget into the floorboard, and the midget couldn't get out from under it, <laughs> and he was trapped in the floorboard screaming. And he said, they said he cussed Armand Hussein like like he he owned him by putting that jacket in the trunk and getting it out of the car. And anyway, I thought that was a hilarious story to lose a midget in a snowstorm. Well, you you know what his real name was, don't you, Jerry? No idea. Mike Barber. You kidding? Nope. And he wrestled when he heard. first started. Before he became uh, Armand Hussein, his name he wrestled on the name Mike Harmon. And then he wrestled his, uh, it was Singh, something Singh. He was he was supposed to be a, uh, an Indian, you know, like. Where did he, where did he get started? Yeah, let's sing. Um, 
I don't know. He worked. Uh, he worked in um, Portland in the '60s. He was called uh, Hussein the Butcher. He worked with Abdullah. And, uh, and what year was he, that? He was sixty-two, sixty-three. He was. He worked in New York for Vince in uh, the mid-sixties. And then uh, God, I, I can't. He, he worked just about everywhere. Well, he worked in Georgia. Uh, did he? Did he work in the Gulf Coast area? Oh yeah, he was. He was the first big. Uh, well, not the first, but he was the. Uh, um, only the second uh, black guy that main evented in in the Gulf Coast. He was the first that they ever put an individual title on. Um, I think that's where I met him first. Was down there. No, I don't think you would unless you met him unless you did a card in Panama City or Dothan with him because you were in in seventy one. He didn't come in until seventy two. He came well, in in May of nineteen seventy two. Isn't it strange, Jerry, when somebody knows more about your career than you do? Well, in my case, that's not hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I just I don't know where I was around him. You probably crossed paths with him. I mean, uh, he may have been out. Um, he may have been working for Watts or, or McGurk whenever you were in Louisiana, because he worked for McGurk no, quite a bit. There. He wasn't there. He wasn't there when I was there. I can't. I thought it was in Alabama where I first met him. I don't think he wasn't up there for Golden when we were there. He may have been. I don't know. I don't it know. Seemed, it he seems like he didn't come I... into Mobile till '72. It seems like when I remember seeing him on TV, he he may have been working, you know, as a wrestler, but he he was primarily working as a manager. Uh, is 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 what I remember, and I, I think it was Atlanta TV, but I can't tell you what year it was. Well, I know he was in there because he. Uh, I don't remember him being a, a manager in Georgia, but I think he came in. And he had a deal going with Norvell when Norvell was still being managed by Dandy Jack, because they did some they did several tag team matches. Um, but uh, he had a he had a neat little saying that he used to say, and, and Tony Atlas ended up. I don't know where Tony would have heard it, but I I heard Tony say it, you know, a decade later. But Armand used to hold his fist up, and that accent he'd say, "This is an African soup bone." He said, if I hit you with this, if you don't fall down, you do very many funny things standing up. <laughs> but he was he was over like a fat rat in, in Mobile. No kidding. And he, he did that. He, he borrowed a lot of his gimmick from the Sheik, obviously. He wore the curly-toed shoes. And yep. he would do the camel the camel walk that the Sheik used to do. Yep. Was he wearing the But funny? he was a big guy. I mean, he was, you know, a big muscular guy for a 250-pounder. He could do like... The 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 somersaults on on somebody laying flat like uh, uh, Carpentier used to do, and uh, he had a thing that really he that really got over. I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't a finishing hold or anything. It was just something he did in every match that the the people just ate up. He would get a guy down on the mat in an arm bar and stretch his arm out, and he would he would do a handstand. And, and stay, you know, in a vertical position like that for like 
30, 45 seconds, and then come down with his knees across the guy's arm. He'd do that a half a dozen times on the guy, and he'd do it. He'd stay up longer every time he did it, and the fans just ate him up. Like I said, that was a, for a big guy to be able to do stuff like that. But uh, he was funny. Of course, you know, at the time, he was he was the only black guy in the territory at the time, so naturally, you know, the guys had to rib him. He traveled by himself, and Bob Kelly, especially when they were over in Mississippi, Bob Kelly and Frank Dalton used to travel a lot together, and they'd, they'd recognize Armand's car, and they'd run up behind him and flash their lights and, and, you know, act like they were the police or whatever. They stopped him one time, got him pulled over, and Armand, Armand reached under the seat and got his gun, and, and they waved him off after and he finally recognized him. He said, uh, I thought you guys might be the Ku Klux Klan, and Frank said, w- w- "What makes you think we aren't?" <laughs> <laughs> that was another guy that uh, Frank Dalton. We, you, you were around him, I know, Jerry, because you teamed yeah. with him your first night in Mobile. Um, he was just a hanger on. He was a he was a. a a guy that hung around with Don Fargo when when Fargo was doing the Dalton gimmick in uh, in Louisiana, and then when Jim quit, went uh, where did Jim go? I think he went back to Texas or maybe Florida, but I don't know. But, but uh, Jack, which was Don Car- uh, Don Fargo, was left without a partner, and Frank had wanted to get in the business, so uh, he trained him and everything, but. Uh, he and Kelly uh, got to be real close where they were in um, when they were in Louisiana. And Frank had a thing. Frank loved to take. He took some crazy bumps. He was like he took he bumps did. like Ray Stevens. He, you could count on a Frank Dalton match. He was going to get thrown out of the ring at some point. He loved to go over the ropes and through the ropes. But he had uh, um, whenever they do a, a whipped him into the turnbuckle, he'd get about four or five steps out from the turnbuckle, turn around and leave his feet and literally jump backwards. Well, he did that one time uh, on uh, TV in Louisiana and jumped too high and went over the top turnbuckle and hit the back of his head on the uh, ring post. And uh, so he had a headache, but he worked the rest of, you know, that night and everything. And then uh, Kelly was picking him up at the uh, hotel to um, take him to the next town, couldn't get him, couldn't get him to come to the hotel door. So he got the guy, to, the hotel manager, to let him in there. And Frank was in a coma. Oh my God! And uh, he wound up in a, with a concussion, and he had to take about four or five weeks off, and he, he was paralyzed on on his uh, left left side. And Kelly worked with him, and worked with him, and worked with him to get his timing back and everything, so he could, you know, he, and he wrestled for another fifteen years. But he never did regain all of his his feelings in his left side. Well, that was great of Kelly to do that. I guess maybe he, you know, he he felt like uh, he should have been more concerned about it at the time it happened. But you know, guys were taking all sorts of crazy bumps and things like that, so it wasn't really all that unusual, right? Yeah. No, no. Especially like like I said, Frank, and still even after that, he still took some crazy bumps. But uh, if you looked at Frank Dalton, if if you didn't see him, you know, if you met him out in the street and everything, you'd never think he was a professional wrestler. He was probably 
late 20s, early 30s, looked like he was about 60. He had slick back black hair when he wasn't bleaching it blonde, because when he was teaming with uh, Fargo as the Dirty Daltons, they had blonde hair. But then Frank just, uh, he grew his, you know, his natural color dark. And uh, he grew these big mutton chop sideburns, and he had a, a Clark Gable mustache. And you you think he was you know sixty year old man when he was still in his his uh, late twenties early thirties. But he couldn't have weighed a buck eighty. No, not a bit, not a bit. But he could. You know, he wound up. Did you ever uh, did you ever run across him later on when he was doing jobs for uh, Munchnik on on uh, St. Louis TV? He'd gone back to using his real through. name, which was uh, Gene Stevens. I never saw I never saw him in St. Louis. Yeah, he was up there doing jobs in probably late seventies, uh, early eighties, and then Gene when Ste- uh, Gene, Gene Stevens, Stevens. His, his name, his real name was Narvel, not Norvell, Narvel, N-A-R-V-E-L, Narvel Gene, not Eugene, but Narvel Gene Stevens was his real name. And uh, like but he always worked. Um. Yeah, I think he was from Louisville. I mean, I know that's where Fargo found him. But uh, he was he up there? Was he with Golden when you were up there, Jerry? No. Because he was like, no, I think it was later on he was up there because he was the main heel up there for a while. But he, um, his last gig in the business after he moved to Texas was working for Fritz. When James Harris first started doing that Kamala gimmick, Frank was the very first Friday, or I, mean, I think he was called Kimchi or something. They wore the wore the mask and right, the, yeah, uh, the, yeah. the the pith helmet and the the jungle outfit. Yeah. Sure I pass. saw that him on TV. Now I hadn't seen Frank Dalton in oh god, I, probably ten years. And the minute he walked out with uh, with Kamala, even though he was wearing a mask. I said, that's Frank Dalton under that mask. Anyway, I wasn't even sure he was still alive. But uh, that was the last thing he did in, in the wrestling business. You know, and, and that's interesting. Some of the guys that uh, you wouldn't see for a while, and they changed their, their gimmick, and, you know, they look completely different, and or try to anyway. And like you said, as soon as they walked out, you knew who they were. Well, the, when Kamala first did that, started doing that gimmick in uh, in Memphis, his uh, his handler was Buddy Wayne under him, and wearing that same outfit that Frank wore. Huh. It's probably one of the last things Buddy did in the business. Well, you know, you brought up something. You mentioned him. You know, we've talked about this a little bit before, but I just wonder how many guys. You know, they make such a big deal, and it's not, I mean, I'm not making light of it, but they make such a big deal about the concussions now. Mm-hmm. And all these guys got concussions. Where, I mean, how many times, I wonder how many times, you know, guys over the years got their bell rang, and, uh, you know, just probably was bad enough that they shouldn't have worked. I mean, I mean, I, not a lot, but, I mean, I've got – I've got my clock cleaned a couple of times where I didn't even know what day it was. And and 
these guys that are taking these big crazy bumps every night, you just wonder. Uh, oh yeah, that, yeah. That, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I, I, the couple of times that I had had my bell rung, it was just from taking a simple bump. I just didn't yeah. land right. And as you said, Bobby, they were just so scared for their jobs that, you know, they they said, "I'm okay." You know, I'm okay. I can I can I can work. Plus, they didn't want to give the idea that they weren't manly enough to do the job. Oh but yeah. They also, they wanted to keep the job, but in many cases, it it actually shortened their career. Probably if and, the region. And most re- of, if most the, of the time, it wasn't from a guy tatering you. It was from hitting your head on the mat or on the floor or something. Yeah, exactly. Just taking a bump wrong. Right. You know. Now, just just imagine if the regional booking offices hadn't gone away, and you're thinking about these guys that took all of this abuse. You know, thinking about if it, if the system had continued, how they would have had to quit early because they were no longer cognizant enough to to work in the ring. Uh, you know. You just couldn't book them anymore because they didn't know who they were. Some of them started out that way, like Brute Bernard. What a Frank, that was. Frank Hickey. <laughs> yeah, and the, and Jerry, the Kelly yeah, twins. Yeah, I, I remember seeing Frank Hickey, you know, it had to be one of his final matches uh, in Griffin, Georgia, when I was working down there, and uh, with his spaceman suit on. But uh, Jerry added a new layer to that uh, when he mentioned that Frank Hickey asked him if he knew how to work. So, you know, <laughs> well, Tom, he wanted to know if I was smart to the business. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I hooked up with him. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, you know, Tom, as I said, you know, he trained Tom Ernesto and, and, uh, Tom, Tom, he had a fond place in Tom's heart, and Tom used him. I mean, I refereed. I, I guess I may have refereed that one in Griffin that night. Uh, but he, he would, uh, you know, he just lost all sense of what he was doing. He'd be laying flat on the mat, and he'd cup his hands over his mouth and call a spot. You know, just, just shout at the guy standing up over the top of him, and 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 you know, Tom finally got to where he he just couldn't use him anymore. But you know, I, and I felt sorry for him. You know, he. I really did. He was one of those guys, you know, I've heard all my life that there's a very thin line between being a genius and just absolutely being off the deep end. And I think that's where he was because I've heard Bill Bowman talk about him, how smart he was and, and right. how meticulous he was about certain things. And then, and then again, he would just be totally off the deep end. And I guess there were points where you weren't sure if he was playing it up or he was really out, out there somewhere, you know. And yeah. and that's where, where the genius part came in. You'd like to give any more credit for it, but it just happened to to work out the way it did because of his condition. Uh, but the match I saw him in, and I don't know who, how long, it was a very short match. You know, most of the what he did took place going to the ring, uh, you know, dealing with the crowd rather than, what he did once he got in the ring after he fooled around getting his instructions and making a few comments to his opponent. It was just a few seconds and the match was over with. And he wasn't the winner. <laughs> I don't know if he ever won a match as Frank Hickey. He might have won a few when he was Bozo Brown. but Really? Yeah. He used that name? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. He that's used what that name. That was... 
that's the name he started out. I mean, Frank Hickey was his real name, but the, his first gimmick name in the, in the uh, 40s was Bozo Brown. And wow. He works in Chicago quite a bit. There's video of, of him out there. I've seen pictures of him when he <laughs> was younger, but not as a young, you know, a young no. wrestler. Uh, but I just wondered, Jerry, what you thought that night when you got in the ring with him. That's the first time I'd ever seen him. I didn't know what I was doing. And I think he'd agree with me, according to him, but <laughs> it, was, uh, it was different. I mean, you know, it was what it was. Jerry, well, you I just wanted to ask you something while it, while it popped into my head, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. Did you see no. the picture Scott Teal posted of you and Wilbur Snyder on Facebook? Yeah. I sent good you a picture. copy of it. Very good picture. You know, that's yeah, one guy that I never saw work live. You know, I saw him work on, you know, videotape from some places, but I never saw him work live. And he I saw him in Atlanta listed. a few times. And he was on the back page of the after after uh, Ray Gunkel passed away, he was on the back page of the uh, you know the little booklet the for the for the coming attractions, and he was supposed to be as one of Ray's friends who Ann Gunkel was going to bring in, and uh, and at any rate, you know he never showed because. The uh, split took place, but uh, there obviously were already some discussions about some people she wanted to bring in uh, when they decided to pull, you know, pull the rug out from under. Where was that picture taken, Jerry? I was trying to think, wonder where where you two would have worked together. I have no earthly idea. I don't think place I could come up with was Japan, maybe. Well, he came. Wilbur used to come to Atlanta every once in a while. Oh, did he? I, just, I yeah, saw him absolutely. wrestle a few times, yeah. You know, well, as, as, well, a, as a kid growing up, I mean, you know. That program I've got, if I can dig it up uh, while I'm looking for some of our Thanksgiving stuff, is a full back page, you know, and it's a regular promotional picture of Wilbur Snyder in his later later days, and it said, coming to Atlanta. And that's just right before the All-South split. Well, Jerry, but you look good with mustache. You should have kept that mustache. That had to have been that had to have been in Georgia because I, I when I went to Japan the first time, that's when I grew it. And when I come back, I still had it. So it was, I guess, in Atlanta. I don't know. I don't know where that picture was taken. And that was back in the days. If you had a mustache, you you were automatically a heel. Or if you turned well, heel, you come, grew a mustache or a beard. When I got yeah, back common. to Japan with that mustache, Dickie grew one, Colt grew one, who else grew one? Then I'll show you mine. That was, yeah, that was but, Buddy Colt with a mustache. Did you have to darken it up, Jerry? At that age, no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, your your hair was light, right? No. No? I, 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 did you know I still don't have any gray hair? That's no joke. Well, I got plenty, and I, I earned every one of them. Well, I was excited. Debbie said she is proud of every one I have. 
But as far as <laughs> growing a mustache, I, you know, I'm 61 years old. I couldn't grow a mustache. It looked like a baseball team. It'd be about nine hairs on each side. <laughs> they were no, I don't have any gray hair. And I asked him, I said, how come you ain't got any gray hair? You know, he didn't have a gray hair. He, he said, I take power. That's a B, B vitamin. I don't have any gray hair. Well, it's, yeah. a gen- it's a gen- genetic thing unless you've had a lot of stress and, and uh, you know, injuries and things like that in your life. I mean, you, you know about a guy who black hair either. As long as Miss Clarell makes products, he won't have any. Well, you know, <laughs> you've seen guys that were 22 or 23 that were, you know, uh, they they didn't have any hair on top of their head. I mean, you know, it's just it's a genetic. And uh, then other guys that were 80 had a full head of hair. Well, see, my grandfather, he didn't ha- his hair didn't start to turn gray till he had his first stroke, and he was nearly 80 years old when that happened. But up until then, his hair was jet black. Well, I don't care what color mine turns. I just don't want it to turn loose. That's right. There you go. That's the main thing. I, I didn't have any gray hair until I worked with Smith, Hans Smith the first time. <laughs> My hair was always very thick. And, uh, you know, Mike, you talked about those uh, mutton chops and some of those pictures of me. Yeah, I remember uh, And it didn't take long for me to grow a beard. Uh, and that's really, uh, I think, the only reason I've got any hair left on the top of my head at all is because it was it was so thick when I was a young kid. You know, flat tops were the rage at a certain age of mine and uh, in the 50s, early 60s. And I'd go to the, my dad would take me to the barber shop and I'd say, give me a flat top. And they couldn't do it. My hair was so thick in the front there that it would just bend down. They couldn't, I don't care how much of that cement stuff they'd put on there, you know, to make your hair stand up. Uh, mine just wouldn't do it. So they just had to buzz cut it. Hmm. I wore a flat top until I graduated from high school in 1972. Where'd you graduate like from, Bobby? Roosevelt High School in Atlanta. Okay. I graduated from Headland in East Point in 1965. East Point, yeah. 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 yeah, that's where I I, I was from. And, you know, I, I lived on the east side. I mean, sorry, yeah, the east side uh, when I was young up until the seventh grade. And then uh, we moved on the other side of uh, East Point over to the Greenbrier area. Uh, when I was uh, 12 years old, and then I went to Headland, uh, you know, finished finished my illustrious career at Headland High School in 1965. And and we had the, as you did, we had the uh, graduation at the Atlanta City Auditorium. City Auditorium, yeah. Yeah, when I got out of high school, I was a, my favorite thing in high school was ROTC, and I actually had a, my sergeant major wanted to uh he was friends with Ben Blackburn, who was a congressman, and he actually was going to offer me uh, an appointment to West Point uh, well, for uh, with a scholarship. And they, but they were playing Vietnam at the time, that's and right. uh, second lieutenants were were dying like those little ducks in the shooting galleries. Yep. And so I I had a full year before I had to register for the draft, so I said no. Now hindsight's twenty twenty. They ended the draft the following year. Man, I could be a general or something. Did there you, you did you? 
Did you were you in the lottery during that period? No, I never. I did not have to. I graduated. I turned seventeen on the seventh day of May. Graduated high school the twenty ninth. So I had eleven months and however many days before I had to register. So I registered the following year, and that's the same Nixon into the draft. What June or July that year? Right. So yeah. he's my horse. He don't ever win a race. There you go. Uh, yeah, when I when I was in sixty six to sixty eight, that was the height of the Vietnam War, and uh, they kept offering me OCS uh, in ordinance and uh, and a uh, couple other areas, and you know I I'd already gotten down to where I was below the levy level of being able to send me over. I didn't have enough time yet and left, and you know I said thanks but no thanks. I got other things to do. I've done my requirement. I didn't go to didn't go to Canada. Didn't uh, I knew one guy that was a musician that that uh, injected something that was of illegal nature into his ear when he went down to the induction center, and they sent him home, and uh, and he didn't have to. They didn't call him back. You think about all the guys that bleached their hair blonde. I want to, I, I remember Rocket. By the time he came back through Mobile, his second or third time, he didn't have enough hair on top of his head. And what little bit of wisp he had, he was still bleaching it blonde. Right. But uh, I'm surprised that a lot of them didn't go bald. All that this stuff had to have, had to have damaged their hair some. And it got pulled a little bit. Yeah. Plus the the, the guys that would uh, like Tommy Ritz that loved to blade, where they they'd uh, their blonde haired be like yeah, a crim- wet, a crimson red mask. Mop. Yeah, crimson mask. Well, those guys I'm, those guys that bleached that hair and they did that they did a lot of bleeding. They spent so much money on hair conditioner and and things to uh, uh, try to keep their hair from from getting brittle. I mean, it was uh, you'd go to the shower, man, and it looked like a a sampling of uh, of the, the high end beauty salons from town. Who was the but, first guy you ever seen use a hair dryer in a dressing room, Jerry? That's a good. Uh, that's a good question. I really don't know, Bobby. You know, most guys, you know, you'd towel off and run a yeah. brush through your hair or something. You know, first guy I ever saw use a hairdryer was Paul Jones. I could see that. I went to Charlotte yeah, I <laughs> to work. I went went up to work Greenville for Crockett, and and uh, he had a he used a hairdryer out because I remember I heard it run and I thought, what is that? And he was in there blow drying his hair. Well, he had a pretty good mop at that time, you know, and so. Yeah. He didn't spend much time in Georgia, did he? No, not a whole lot. I mean, he was here for a while, but not a long time. He was was a heel here, if I remember correctly. And, uh, but he pretty much worked in uh, the Carolinas as a baby face, if I am not mistaken. He did yeah, some babyface stuff here too. Well, the he came in as a babyface. He ever face. worked as a heel. 
he was a baby face most of his career because um, he spent several years team with uh, Nelson Royal. Yeah, and, and he was mostly in the Crockett area, but he came yeah. in as a baby face, but I'm pretty sure that he turned heel while he was here, and then, of course, later on he became a heel manager. Yeah, but his first place as a heel, Jack Briscoe, when he and Dory were taking their match all over the country, they worked together in uh, in Charlotte, and, and Paul was there, and he was just kind of languishing because, you know, um, he was that territory was so much of a tag team territory back in those days because George Becker and Johnny Weaver were the bookers there. And uh, Jack said, look, um, why don't you come to Tampa? And uh, he said, uh, have you ever thought about working heel? And Paul said, not really. And he said, well, we'll come to Tampa and we'll try you out as a heel. So Jack pulled a rib on him. When he got to Tampa, he flew to Tampa. Jack picked him up at the airport, and uh, he said, uh, I guess we need to go to the office so I can get my bookings. Jack said, what bookings? Mm-hmm. He said, I just wanted you to come down here. You know, we were going to talk to Eddie. I'm not even sure you're going to have a job here. Of course he did, but Jack was ribbing him. He said Paul picked up his suitcase and went back to the airport. <laughs> Went back inside the airport, was going to catch a flight back to Charlotte. I guess but so. that was the first time I ever saw him as a heel was in in, in uh, Tampa, and he was a big time heel down there. But it didn't last that long. They turned him babyface after about a year. Well, he had but, uh, he had a pretty good uh, you know on pretty good on the mic as a heel. Speaking of Mike, we're down to a minute unless you want to continue the conversation. No, we're going to cut it short. Uh, we're going to. Uh, do our annual Thanksgiving show next week. Um, those that can join us, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll I'll be there. Dis- discuss some of the uh, historical Thanksgiving cards, uh, not only in in Atlanta or Georgia, but wherever else. Between you and I, we can can find something to talk about. Um, but uh, anyway, for those who uh, won't won't be able to join us. And uh, as far as our listeners go, I hope everybody has a good Thanksgiving and uh, everything. Hope you guys have a great Thursday next week, and then uh, we'll uh, we'll get together next Thursday night and and do our our Paul Jones Memorial. Speaking of Paul Jones, not the not the wrestler Paul Jones, but the Paul Jones Memorial Thanksgiving radio show. <laughs> All right, that sounds good. All right, gentlemen. All right, guys. Next week. Good night, guys. Good night, everybody. We thank you for listening to this broadcast, a production brought to you by the GWH Radio Network. Stay tuned to GeorgiaWrestlingHistory.com for the latest information on upcoming events and more. As always, we thank you for your continued support.